Yes, sir. Can you comment on how uh, the thesis applies to music? Yes. Yes. If you invite me back next year, I will show you. <laughs> because that's the second part of the book. And if you don't want to wait until next year, buy the book. Uh, then you can read it. But basically, uh, I mentioned it already. So I mentioned the triad. The triad is a chord. That's three separate notes that are in one. That's, a, that's an image of the Trinity. And so Pythagoras had all these ideas about uh, uh, music as representing something spiritual. Okay, well it is, it's true. But the, the, this is a different kind of mimesis. And the mimesis here is we're talking about something that takes place in time that you cannot see. And because it takes place in time, it's really what Aristotle was talking about in his poetics when he talks about drama. Because there is drama in music. And there's drama in the scale. It's better the diatonic scale because there's a, you get to the seventh note and you have to go to the eighth. It has to be resolved. There is some, something about music that demands this type of resolution. And so it's an analysis, if we're talking about nature, simply on that term alone, it's like, uh, it, we're talking about mimesis of movements of the soul. That's what the music talks about. And it goes directly to the soul. And so you can have an experience, uh, like, I will on the St. Children. And it's a great experience, you know, when you start off on a dock, and that's the first note, that's the, the note that begins the scale here. And you're going along, and everything's fine, and then suddenly, the weather changes, and you get to Mishawaka, and a thunderstorm rolls in, and suddenly you're scared to death. And you think, I'm going to die. And then finally the storm passes, and you get back to the dock, and you're released. Well, that's catharsis, that's drama, and that's music. And if you want to talk about an actual example of music, talk about Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. Because there's a thunderstorm in the middle of Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. And that's the type of... That's, there's a long story before you get to Beethoven. He was an incredible, uh, uh, incredible advance in my thesis when it comes to music. So you have, there's an Italian uh, uh, a violin concerto by the volley called Tempesto Amato, the storm at sea. Well, it's not really a storm at sea. Because he didn't have the magnetic ability that Beethoven had. Once Beethoven did the Sixth Symphony, all, all sorts of things opened up. You had a tremendous outburst of creativity in the, in the 19th century. And so you had Rossini. There's a storm in Villa Hotel Ocho. There's a storm there. You know, with the thunderstorm in. And then you come to Swan Lake and the, the finale of Swan Lake. There's a storm there. So I'm saying this is how my Mises developed. It's, it's more complicated than that, but that's why you need to read the book. Because I may die. The world may end before. <laughs> yes, who's next? Yes. If you want to uh, locate some things, Mike, uh, thanks for your wonderful lecture. Uh, chronologically, the Council of Trent. So we've been right. Run by the Jesuits, basically. Was it? No. No? Okay, we'll leave that. 1500s? Yeah, the late 16th century. Okay, late 16th century. It, it, was, it was started and then it got stopped. Right, right, do that. Now, I want to link that somehow, or you help me, of course, with uh, iconoclasm in my theological education. Uh, Justinian and Theodora, and when was that? That's their church fathers. 
So we're talking, there was, there was iconoclasm, periods of iconoclasm that took place in various places. Right. The Muslims were iconoclasts, there was iconoclasm in the, uh, in Byzantium. Uh, generally, it's, it's some type, it's a Judaizing tendency. So whenever you have Judaizers in the church, they hate images and they break the images because it's anti-incarnation. So somehow images are not seen as vehicles of the spirit at all. No, they're seen as temptations. And I'm saying, look, if I had been, if I had been a German mercenary and I walked into the Sistine Chapel, I would have been shocked. Because the cardinals were shocked. So if they're shocked, there was no one who had a more sophisticated education than Federico Borromeo. He had uh, G.E.O. This is the culmination of the Italian tradition, the Italian art tradition, where they achieved things that no one had ever come close to before that. And he was part of that. And, and even he was shocked. He, he did it, but I didn't, I don't have any of it. There was a portrait of Tisha did of Mary Magdalene. So there's Mary Magdalene, and there's a bare-breasted Mary Magdalene. And he said, look, bare-breasts are appropriate at this point because they are symbolic of her former occupation. But she's got red eyes because she's been crying, so she's repenting that former occupation. And besides that, don't put it in the chapel. It's not fitting for the chapel. Pius X had the same thing to say about music. Okay, he said, I love opera, but it's not suitable for the mass. And that meant like, you know, Beethoven's mass is really not suitable. It's too, it's too grandiose, it's too distracting. How about Mozart's? No. Sorry. Huh? I love he said he put it this I love the I love the Rossini, yeah. but it's not appropriate for the liturgy. Huh. This rich so the same thing about the chapel. It's, it's beautiful art. You can have the bare breast and bare magdalene in your private room. And when you pray, you can think about repentance and her former way of life. And that would be great. But don't put it in the chapel. It's too, it's too scandalous. I hear that, but some um, modern dialogue is coming to mind from the, quote, my friends in the Protestant fundamentalist realm. Very easily, they say, that's pagan, meaning it's not godly. Is that some type of echo of what you've been describing? Yeah, what's wrong with being pagan? <laughs> Whenever they say this type of thing, I say, well, what about uh, the prologue to the Gospel of St. John? Is that pagan? It comes out of the Ephesian mysteries there in Ephesus. No, it doesn't. It comes out of the metaphysical tradition of the, that had been established by Plato and Aristotle. Okay. This is the cutting edge of Logos in human history. That's Plato and Aristotle. The, the, the God is not going to turn his back on a noble effort like that. He's not going to say, no, sorry. No, that was an achieve, a great achievement because they came up with the word Logos. That's a very important word. We still don't have a word like Logos. And so, the, 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 first of all, God is the author of human history. So in many, it says God inspired Plato and Aristotle to talk this way. So why is he going to turn his back on what he's fired? This is just a stupid kind of narrow-minded well, about pain. Oh, pain. My family was paid at a certain point. Yeah. So was yours. So <laughs> we were all we all came from pagans at some point. So you're going to spit on your ancestors uh, because they didn't have the benefit of the gospel? I used to say to my Iranian friends, my my uh, German ancestors were chasing pigs through the forest. When the Iranians were, when the Persians were philosophers and astronomers, there, there's a, so there's a moment. There's one thing: there are moments in history where you simply could not explain what's going on, 
or whether it's, it's too dangerous. As with the Persians, they found out because they were conquered by these camel jockeys, the, the Arabs, and uh, it became dangerous to be a philosopher. So what did they do? They all became poets, and they created the greatest poetry, some of the greatest poetry in the world, with Hafez and Fidosi. And that's how they carried Logos War in Persia under this uh, Arabic agenda. So don't despise, it's beauty, beautiful poem. And so the inside, you get to know a Persian in the radio. You know, if you know him well, they'll say, you know, take you aside and say, look, this is Ferdosi. Ferdosi is the greatest poet in Iranian history. And he felt that Islam was the biggest catastrophe that ever happened to his country. And that is being nurtured through poetry. And that's not, you're going to have to come to a record. That's a lesson long story. Next question. Yes, sir. Um. I know you're not the biggest fan of Hegel, but it, it strikes that, that a lot of what you're talking about with um, this sort of the dynamic between divine and, and uh, worldly mediator of Christ uh, um, fits into like a dialectical description. Right. Um, uh, do, you, do you agree, I guess? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I am a big fan of Hegel. Okay. <laughs> I, I remember. In spite of his problems. So you're talking about the transition between part two of my book and part three of my book. Okay, because there are three people were born in 1770, more than three people actually, but three important <laughs> Beethoven, Hegel, and Wordsworth. And what you're seeing with Hegel and Beethoven is the same reaction to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. And the, who embodied the spirit of the times at that point for both of these people? It was Napoleon. So the Third Symphony is about Napoleon. Beethoven's Third Symphony is about Napoleon. But it's not, it's not like and, and Napoleon showed up here. No, it's, it's about the emotions that Europeans felt as Napoleon is breaking down the old order. He's a genius. Uh, Hegel was in Jena when Napoleon came riding through. And what they have in common, what Hegel and Beethoven and Wordsworth have in common, is the dialectic. The dialectic is in the Sixth it's, it's my thesis, but this is, what is the dialectic? You begin with something that's real and unconscious. This is when you're a child, and then you become an adolescent, when you become conscious, but you're not real. You've got all these ideas, but nothing has happened, and then you finally become an adult, which is usually when you get married, and then it's both real and conscious at the same time. That's the dialectic. This is what happens with Beethoven's Sixivity. It starts off, Beethoven enters nature. Okay, it's beautiful walking through nature because nature is redeemed, it's placed refuge from the city, and then he comes across the peasants who are dancing. Da 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 sort of kind of rhythmic thing, and they're dancing and dancing, and suddenly what happens? The thunderstorm goes in. And suddenly chaos threatens everything. And now what are we going to do? We're all going to die, uh, but maybe not. And then suddenly the thunderstorm passes away. And so we've had Confronted with adversity, just like the Fifth Symphony, 
You're confronted with adversity, you overcome adversity, and now you're on a higher level. And I can't hum that part, I forget. <laughs> That's the end of the symphony, where suddenly, you, this is the dialectic. This is the way Logos, this is the way God works in human history. And all of these people are understanding. The other analogy would be Wordsworth's uh, poem, Daffodils, which is the same type of thing. They're all coming together. It's all based on my pieces, but in di di different forms. So, no, I am a fan of Hegel. Uh, he's got his problems, but this was the zeitgeist at that point, and it led to another outburst of creativity, uh, which is the music that had begun in the 18th century with people like Mozart, Vivaldi, all the way up to the 20th century. And then I talk about how we all went to hell in a handbasket, and that's part four. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. Uh, so going back to the uh, beginning of your lecture, you're talking about um, the development of Plato's dualism and the uh, forms, um, and I believe you used the word becoming uh, at one point, um, and like you have like chaos and like becoming, and then you have on the other hand have like the, the form of the thing. Um, so. I just wanted to ask if you could elaborate a little more on that and then um, how you talk about how Aquinas basically like reversed and, uh, and uh, perfected that. Yeah, so there were two realms for Plato. Time and eternity. And eternity was the realm of geometrical figures or forms, and time was meaningless flux. What happened with, because he didn't understand there was creation. So now you have the Christian idea of creation, and when you have the Christian idea of creation, there is logos in creation. We can call it matter if you want. That's what they matter was formless. Uh, but if you want to call it whatever it is out there, it's not just formless matter. There's a, a logos to it. There is a reasonableness to it. There is a form to it. And all you have to do is study the form. This is what Aquinas said. That the form, you can derive the form from nature. You don't have to impose it on nature. It's like, I said it was like the difference between Crisis Magazine and Culture Wars Magazine. Crisis Magazine had a form at the beginning. It was called conservatism. And that got imposed on the magazine. And that meant everything had to fit into that procrustean bay of conservatism. I didn't have a clear idea of what it was that I was starting. And so I just started doing articles. And the more articles I did, the more the big pictures started to. You see the difference? That's, that's the difference that Aquinas brought about in art and aesthetics. That's the difference. So and just a, a, a recent example, sorry. Uh, I spent a week in Brad Pitt's bachelor pad in Carmel, California. That's the way it was described when I went when completed the sale. I knew the people who owned it before that. They invited me out as their last. It's a kind of sad thing. But it's the most beautiful house. You can Google it. I, I should have a picture. Actually, I do have a picture. Go all the way to the end uh, of me and Brad Pitt's bachelor pad. There I am. Now, <laughs> this, is called, this is called the D.L. James House. It's in Carmel Highlands, California. And it is one of the most, I mean, I talked about Bavaria as a place where it's this perfect match between nature and culture. But there's no building in Bavaria that does it better than this house. And so if this was created by the man who created the bungalow, 
This is the cliff. I'm looking out over the Pacific Ocean, which is a stunning view. And this is the house. The D.L. Green creates the bungalow in Pasadena. He basically priced himself out of the market. He doesn't know what to do. He shows up at an artist colony in Carmel. And a guy comes up to him and says, I just bought this property. Can you build a house? So what did he do? What did Charles Green do? He went there and he camped out there for a year. Now, he had studied architecture at MIT in Boston in the 1890s. And that meant the Beaux-Arts tradition, which meant he'd build a Greek temple wherever he went. And he decided, there I am, there's the background. That's what I'm looking at. That's behind me, that's the Pacific Ocean. He, I, he, I don't think he ever read Aquinas. Why would anyone read Aquinas in Boston in 1890? That's not what they were reading. They were studying the Beaux-Arts tradition, which had beautiful buildings, the Kim Meaton White, the train station in Washington, Washington D.C., the University Club in Manhattan. They're beautiful buildings, but they're Greek temples. And he said, no, this isn't America. Why are we living in Greek temples? And so he sat there, and what happened here is exactly what Aquinas said. Existence called forth essence. The landscape called forth a building. There was a building waiting to be built there that would arise seamlessly out of the landscape. And that's it. So what do you, this is not typical. He didn't do stone. He did wooden buildings and lots of redwood. But this is what this landscape demanded. So there was a quarry down the road. And he quarried all those stones. And not only that, he sat there and supervised the construction of every single wall. Now, what architect is ever going to do that? That's absolutely crazy. But he was a perfectionist, and if they did it wrong and he was away, he'd come back, tear it down, and do it over again. You, you created, if you go back to that, this is, this is, now go back to the window. That's the kitchen, kitchen window. You look out over the Pacific. Every, every view in that is a work of art. Every, every part of the building is a work of art, and every time you're in a particular place, so Carmel is, that's the Pacific Ocean, it's freezing cold, uh, and it dominates the climate, so sometimes the sun's out and then the fog rolls in. The fog rolls in, you want to go inside, you need a different experience, you have this type of experience, this type of intimacy. This is all, I'm saying, this is Thomistic, and I'm sure that guy never knew what it meant. I'm saying this is an idea that is out there, in the ether to change the world, and we all understand it, even if we don't know where we got it. Yes, sir. Well, they brought this up, Charles, the Green Brothers. Yeah. And they designed furniture as well as a Absolutely. Furniture. They were part of the arts and crafts movement. Yes. So they, they reached the, the pinnacle of their successes in Pasadena from around 1909 up until this this was built in 1918. Look at that. Isn't that stunning? If you get another thing you have to do before you read subscribe to Culture Wars magazine. Because there's a picture on the cover. Like I, I never felt that photography was art. Okay? Like you can't take a picture of the Willemsdorf Venus. That's a man, that's the mind creating something. But this lady, we were standing here, Ruth and I we're standing there as the sun's going down, and this lady took a picture in exactly the right moment. And it's, it's a work of art. But the reason it's a work of art is because you've got imitation of nature there. This building is imitation of nature. It's the, it's the culmination. Man is the culmination of nature. 
man is supreme, great, the Logos is the culmination of nature. You can apprehend nature and you can bring it to perfection in a way that nature cannot do it itself. And that's exactly what that house is. Look at that house. Look at that. That's a work of art simply by, you're, you're surrounded, you're living in a work of art. This is culture. That's nature. There's a, there's a, a seamless transition between the two of them. And you perceive that simultaneous perception of existence, which is nature and essence, which is culture to some extent, perfect coming together at that. And you see it as beauty. And you get to live in beauty. I hope Pag, I hope Brad Pitt appreciates this. <laughs> the woman who, who had to leave had to sell it to me, she sent a copy of my article. Well, I hope he takes it to heart. Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, you touched a little bit earlier about uh, the icons in Greece, and I wanted to get your thoughts on the icon versus the traditional Roman Catholic, Catholic of our perspective. There have been very few innovations with icons throughout the, the centuries. You know, what's happening today in 21st century Russia, really pretty much the same as what Andrei Rublev did back during the time. Why do you think, or do you have an opinion as to why the innovations never came to the East, whereas they definitely came to the Roman Catholic side, for better or for worse, mostly for worse. Yeah. I think that the crucial issue is the Council of Florence, where the, the Medici sponsored the council. The, the, uh, the head of Byzantium, the Muslims, are, the Turks are heading toward Byzantium. We need to resolve this because the West has to send armies to defend Byzantium. So they had the Council of Florence, and they resolved the issue, separated. Uh, one of them was the Filioque Clause. If you want my humble opinion, the main reason art does not develop there is the filioque clause. Because the filioque clause means that, that God, the Holy Spirit, uh, God proceeds from God the Father and the Son. That's dynamic. That's the kind of uh, uh, Trinitarian dynamism that led to this type of thing. If it's just from God the Father, it doesn't have that dynamism. I'm going to be speaking tomorrow to a bunch of Orthodox kids who, I mean, we're the only Catholic there, I'm going to bring this up, but they're going to lynch me. <laughs> but I think I have to be, because the fundamental question is, why was the West so dynamic, and why was the East so static? So the Bessarion came back from Russia, they, they resolved the issue, he goes back to Russia, and the clergy won't accept it, they rejected him. So he went back and he said, I'll become a Catholic. Why was, this is the big issue, it's an apostolic church, it's not a Protestant church. They had, they, if you go back to the councils that hammered out the Trinity, you could not do this unless you spoke Greek. This was Greek philosophy, it came down to two words, homoousion and homoousion. One letter difference, God is one in being or like God, like the Father. That, could, 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 that, that discussion could only take place in Greek. The Latin fathers were completely excluded. And over the period of the next thousand years, it just became uh, statified, stratified, or, or uh, it just stopped developing. And I think it was the break with, first of all, communion with Rome, secondly, the, the filioque clause, and thirdly, ethnocentrism. And that's why they're different. That's why they like, that's why they still do items. Yes. Yeah, I have a question. Um, yes. 
you mentioned we're always presented to two equally repugnant alternatives. I mentioned the Pepper Carlson and the Committee of England comment, and also the reference to iconicalism and pornography. It seems that way in the culture generally, even politically, socially, there's been so much of life we're presented with this duality. And for a thinking person, it, they, a lot of times they seem equally repugnant. Um, so I guess my question as far as, like it seems that's the image of Christ I have, is he's between these two extremes, and he's the middle way. So I, this, it's not so much a question, it's kind of just a comment, like, as far as a creator, I'm an artist myself, what are some other traditions, you mentioned the Persian poetry, to like, how, how, how can artists speak to this moment in American history in a way that recognizes the dark past of America, but that's not woke, that throws a baby out of the bathwater and goes completely full bore, just insane. What, what is a sensible way to come from a Christian Centered tradition, but that is imaginative and that can speak to the culture. What are some What are some books or artists or traditions that can really speak to that moment? Yeah, well, I can't tell you that because that's an individual thing that someone's going to have to create on its own. I can't tell you how to do it. But I can tell you, if it's going to be beauty, it's got to be organized and it's got to be weird because that's you have to do that. So I've been thinking about this from another perspective. I've spent time in Germany. Uh, I mentioned Persia was a time where if you got philosophical or discursive addressed it directly, you would get your head chopped off. Another example was Elizabethan, exactly the same situation. Shakespeare could not talk about the contemporary situation because it was a police state and it was drawn the So what he had to do was have to write about Timon of Athens. When he started about Athens, he started writing about it. The same thing is happening right now in Germany, right now. Germany is a complete police state, it's a completely tyrannical state. And if you tell the truth about certain things, you go to jail. And I'm saying at this moment in time, what we need is art. And this is precisely what I'm trying to propose, trying to bring some pieces together. So that we I know a composer, I was invented with him in the seventies. He's composing things, he's he's in a dead end because he can't deal with the situation. We're going to have to deal with the situation. We can't deal with it directly. Music is the ideal thing because Germans love music. And you're not saying anything in music. You're describing the emotions. So I'm saying you need to do a piece of music that addresses this situation. I can't tell you. I can't write this music poem. I don't know. But I know what it's got to be. It's got to be real. In other words, you have to be talking about this situation even though you can't talk about it. Uh, literally, you get thrown in jail, but we have to address, because of that, you have to address the situation. So in some sense, that's, that's what Beethoven did when he talked about Napoleon in the Third Symphony. Okay? We're going to have to deal with that now. Only art can address this issue in terms You cannot address it specifically. Yes, sir? Um, you mentioned something earlier about <clears throat> how photography you didn't consider it art. And even in uh, your lecture, you mentioned how uh, there can be a hyper-realism uh, to, to certain pieces when people are trying to portray whatever image it is that they want the audience to see. Um, could you expand on that a little bit and maybe also give your opinion on the recent portraits of um, Obama and his wife? Because I believe the artist who drew Obama's portrait was trying to make it look as 
lifelike as possible. Sure. And, you know, like growing up as you a child, to, you know, you have to do that. Right. Have you ever taken a picture of someone and the person says, that's not me? I text to me all the time. Who's that ugly dude? <laughs> oh, it's me. No, that's not really me. Well, there is a way in a sense in which the artist captures the real you. How do we know? Is there a typical, like, you get to know the person, there's some type of typical gesture that that person has, and you catch the moment. You catch that. The camera can't do that. I mean, I, if you have the uh, picture of Logos, the cover of Logos Rising is... Okay, remember I said I rode on the St. Joe River? So, what's that a picture of? There's no camera that can take that picture. It's based on reality. So what's the reality? Well, that's the St. Joe River. And when I row in the summer, and I turn around at Mishawaka, I'm facing east, and that's what the sun looks like coming up over the river. But when I go in the wintertime, I take a walk across the winter, it's too cold to row, and I walk down at twilight, and I walk down a path and there are buildings on either side, and at twilight you can see the lights coming on. So it's two completely different seasons. There's no way you can do that. There's no camera that can do that. That's, that, that the image exists in my mind. It was my grandson who did it. He graduated from Temple, Tyler School, Temple University. But it was the mind, the, only the mind can imitate nature. A, a, a photograph can. So if you look at that picture on the cover of this one's uh, culture wars, what you're seeing is the beauty of nature combined with the beauty of that building at a moment when the sun is going down and the sunlight suffuses the entire portrait, gives it a kind of unity to it, something because of the light. And then there's a psychological drama in this thing as well, namely, me and my wife are standing there looking at the sunlight. And she's looking up. And the sun illuminates her face. And I'm looking down. Now, my face is in kind of a shadow. So it's like the hopeful uh, view of the future and the kind of the melancholy thinking of the past. <laughs> because that's the kind of person. <laughs> but she, the genius there was, first of all, uh, Charles Green, who gave us the environment, God, who gave us the Pacific Ocean. And Allegra, who took the picture, who pressed the button at exactly the right time. None of those, that camera could not do that by itself. So a camera is not my nieces. It's a reproduction, it's a mechanical reproduction. Only the mind can reproduce, can imitate nature. Yes, sir. Yes, fine. Do you see a connection between the loss of our sense of supernatural reality and the appreciation of beauty in our own culture? Of course. Of course I do. respond to that a little bit? Yeah, of course I do. We, we live in a world that is deliberately... First of all, when you get to the 20th century, uh, they abandoned my nieces. Art abandoned my nieces. For, uh, I'm saying for financial reasons, because as soon as you abandon my nieces... You, here's here's uh, Jack the Dripper. He did this painting, Jackson Pollock. Here it is. <laughs> Have I got a painting for you? <laughs> That's a hundred by. Wait a minute. What's this? I understand. No, no. This is this is the up and coming thing. If you buy this, it will be ten, worth ten times its weight in gold within six years. So what's art become? 
As soon as the dealer takes over the art world, it's insider trading. Well, of course, if every rich dude in New York and Manhattan bought a picture like this, which is exactly what happened, Nelson Rockefeller started buying these things and putting them up in Chase Manhattan banks, the value went up. So it's, it's not beauty, it's insider trading. And now, wait a minute, it's, it's hanging upside down. <laughs> Turn it away from it. No, how, how, you can't tell whether it's hanging upside down or right side up. But you trust the dealer. The dealer now holds all the cards. And so what happened is uh, Mr. Kahnweiler showed up. He's a German, German Jew, shows up in Paris and he creates Cubism. Uh, he created Picasso. Because Picasso, who's going to buy Picasso? And this is for Sirius. Would you buy this? Who are these people? Look at that chick. She's cute. <laughs> That's an African mask. Okay, this is called. This is called. She's got a cute armpit, doesn't she? <laughs> uh, she looks like a baboon. This is called the Damso d'Avignon. It is uh, uh, based uh, the, car, the Cahiers d'Avignon was the red light district in Barcelona where he grew up. And so there are three whores. Does that make a difference? What about Etienne Gilson? Oh no, it's just forms. No, it is. It's three whores. This is a deliberately transgressive piece of art. There's an attack on the mimetic tradition of the West. And it was the art dealer, Conviler, uh, who perpetrated that on everyone. This is where the story of the 20th century. These people take over art. Leo Castelli was the same thing in New York. And so this is aggressive. This is transgression. And Picasso got rich on that type of transgression. Yes, sir. Yeah, I wonder if you could just comment on America a little bit. Like, for example, I see this great polarity. I mean, we've liberal surcharged. We've lost Europe around. We've got Jeffrey Sachs in the Vatican. And yet, I also see sparks of the preservation of Christendom in the United States, including you. I thank you so much for what you've done. And I think you're, you're being spread around. You know, you're becoming more popular. So I also see some of the princes of the church very associated with the United States and Gardner Christian Dominique Schneider, Colin Clark, Archbishop Vigano, etc. So I see this polarity. I just wonder if you could comment on that and what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, basically, I said that this is a, uh, America is a tragic adventure. Uh, that's from Hemingway. He said, it's a big, too hard to river. Fishing in the swamp is a tragic adventure. America is a tragic adventure because not, so who, was, who owned the house? A guy named Joe Ritchie. Uh, a guy who was a, a master of the universe, a gambler who made a ton of money at the Chicago border trade and decided, I'm going to do good. And then, you know, beware when you start to think you're going to do good. He said, that's, that's classic America. You know, I'm going to be the innocent, I'm going to do good, I'm going to bring the people together and end it up differently. The same thing with Charles Green. Charles Green said, I'm not going to do the good, I'm going to do the beautiful. And, and he did, but he went broke. Well, that's America. You know, it's like where we are. This is a beautiful house. Thank God that John Haas rescued this beautiful house. Because if we look at all the houses that I passed through coming up here, up Lancaster Avenue, 50 seconds from What happened here? What happened here? This is a tragedy. This is a tragedy. There is this spirit, you know, there is this American spirit. You know, we, we have to carry it on. Why is, what was Philadelphia famous for? 
Ask Digby Balsall wrote a book comparing Philadelphia and Boston. Boston, they had ideas, they talked to each other. Philadelphia, nobody could talk to anybody because it was run by Quakers. <laughs> and you can't talk to a Quaker. Yeah. Uh, the, Catholic <laughs> Church, the Catholic Church has one person that's infallible, known as the Pope. Every Quaker is infallible. <laughs> because when they go to their services, the Holy Spirit speaks directly. So you want to argue with the Holy Spirit? I tried, believe me. I tried to talk to Ed Bacon, the man who created Penn Center. <laughs> but you can paint pictures, and that's what Philadelphia was famous for, the fine arts in Philadelphia. And now you've got anti-fine. Who is who is talking to me? Is it you who are talking to me about the girl who de-skilling? Oh yeah. Going to art school to learn to unlearn all the skills that she learned. Oh, what? This is crazy. We've got lunatics who have taken over the asylum here. We are in position. We are in a position where these people have their hands on the steering wheel and the car is heading toward a cliff. And we all know what I'm talking about. The war in the Ukraine, the, 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 uh, the threat of nuclear war, the Larry Krasner not prosecuting crime, the zombies walking around on Kensington Avenue. My wife and I came from Fishtown. Our families came from Fishtown. Shows you our aristocratic background. <laughs> <laughs> Fishtown was the, the, the working class. They were people who worked there. Her, her father ran a, a little Episcopalian. She's, my first wife was an Episcopalian. That's my first wife, and she was an Episcopalian. <laughs> and this little church. This guy was a mechanic. This was the genius of places like Philadelphia. They had mechanics, Detroit, the thing that made Detroit famous, working for building cars and ships. He could fix anything. And when he died, that, that went out of the church ceased to exist. And a whole generation passed. And now we're in this mess. So how are we going to get out? The best way, the fastest way out of it is beauty. If you can put someone in a beautiful environment, that person, especially a young person, talking about young people particularly, this is why literature is important when you're in high school, because it's accessible, it's concrete. If you can convince that, that person that the world is not only orderly, but that it's beautiful, that person will be more likely to lead a moral life. And the more likely he is to lead a moral life, the more successful that man's life will be. And he will enter heaven afterwards after a successful life on this earth. That is the whole point of civilization. And that's what our struggle is right now. And it can begin with beauty. It can begin with beauty in your home. You know? It would be nice if the whole city were beautiful. It was beautiful. This is beautiful. It's the best place. I can't think of a better place to hold this talk. Because we're surrounded by beauty here. And this is the world that was once our world, and God willing, we can return to it. That's my hope. Thank you.